This judgment came just like God said, exactly like God said, as the word was in the king's mouth, it came down. Every detail of what God predicted, just like God said. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. What does it take to bring people to the realization that the world and everything in it belongs to the Lord, and that one day every knee will bow before Him and every tongue will confess Him as Lord? For King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, it took a fall from his high standing. And that's the account we've been studying this week. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as he completes his message out of Daniel chapter 4, entitled, The Testimony of a Converted King. There are two truths that are underscored concerning the king's disaster. First, I want you to notice when the disaster came. When it came, we read here in verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, a whole year goes by. He had his dream. Daniel had explained it. Life went on, apparently, with no thought to what was said. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. God gave this guy an opportunity to get things straight. And here's a picture of the heart of God. God doesn't immediately zap him. God is long-suffering. But God tells us in Psalm 103, he'll not hold his anger forever. 2 Peter 3 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That chapter of Scripture tells us the only reason Jesus has not come back yet is God is giving people more time in which to repent. And so God is a patient God, and He gives this man 12 months to get right. God is a loving God. He's a merciful God, but don't think that God's delay is a denial of His wrath because it is not. It is coming. Notice beyond when the disaster came, how the disaster came. We're told here in verse 30 that it came because of pride. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And indeed, it was a glorious city. Again, as Babylonian cuneiform tablets record, it was one of the finest cities of the ancient world. Here's a picture of one of the original gates. It's been reconstructed. That's the original gate. You can see it in the British Museum. There was an outer wall in this city and an inner wall. The outer wall was 387 feet high, 87 feet thick. Four chariots could race around it. They had chariot races around that 17-mile-long wall. Here's another picture. The streets were lined with lions and dragons and bulls with bricks. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had his name. Talk about an ego problem. He has name stamped on every single brick, a slogan about himself, on every single brick that they've dug up. There was a banquet hall that sat 10,000 people. And of course, one of his greatest accomplishments, and here's what it would have looked like based on the cuneiform, what we call the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This man had accomplished a lot, but he was stuck on himself. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This was the number one city of the ancient world, and they thought, as we will see in the next chapter, it was impregnable. 
So imagine this proud and arrogant king up there on the roof of the palace one day reflecting, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at how great my kingdom is. Look at all my glory. He did not acknowledge that God is the one who rules over mankind and that it is God who bestows power and authority as he chooses. It was this man's pride that had encapsulated his life. And so the mighty head of gold becomes like a tree stump. Now listen, had he humbled himself, he could have averted the judgment of God. And so the judgment is based on pride, but it comes with tremendous accuracy and preciseness. Look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. This once brilliant, successful, thriving king, and the next moment, he has the mind of a beast. Verse 32 continues, you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, please note, if you have the NASB, the word claws and feathers are in italics. You see that? That tells you this is not part of the original Hebrew or, in this case, Aramaic text that it's inserted there by the translators. And that's okay because it's really implied. But please notice what the Bible does not say. It does not say he grew eagle's feathers. It says his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. It does not say that he had claws, but it says his fingernails and toenails, in essence, had become like bird's claws. He acted like an animal. All personal hygiene was jettisoned. His beard grew out. His hair grew long. Probably after seven years, it was down past his waist, and he crawled around like an animal. When I was a new Christian at Boston College, I went over to the Harvard Christian Fellowship one day to hear a very famous Presbyterian preacher who's now in heaven, Dr. John Gershner. And he was debating a very liberal theologian there at Harvard. And on that occasion, Dr. Gershner compared men and women to rats. And when he was finished with his message in his defense of Christianity, one of the Harvard students stood up and asked Dr. Gershner to apologize for comparing men and women to rats. To which he said, I do apologize. I profusely apologize. It was unfair of me to compare humans to rats. Then he went on to say that at least a rat behaves like a rat because God created him to live like a rat. But God did not create us to live like rats, yet we behave worse than rats. We behave like beasts. And so it's not by accident that God struck this king with insanity because this judgment is a visible representation of a depraved mind. 
And when we choose sin over God, when a nation chooses sin over God, then God, the Bible says, gives that person or that people over to a reprobate mind. That's Romans 1. First, he gives them over to sexual uncleanness because we gave God no praise, no thanks. We don't want you, God. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want the Ten Commandments on the walls. We don't want kids to be able to pray out loud over lunch. We don't want you. God gave us over to that which is unclean, to sensuality, to adultery, to fornication. And we continued in our rebellion, and that brought us to the second stage where God gave us over to homosexuality and lesbianism. And then the third stage is when God gives a nation over to a reprobate mind where there is no shame at all. And that is America today. Welcome to the new America. And in the end of that chapter, it says, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Not only are they saying of us in our face, you ought to do these things, and you ought to ascribe to these things, but they demand that we recognize they are right. That's America. That's God abandoning the nation. That's not a f new nation. That's not a free nation. That's an entrapped nation. That's not the wrath of God that will be revealed. That's what Romans 1 calls the wrath of God that is being revealed. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar's pictured here, state, would be known medically as lycanthropy. Lycan is... The Greek word for wolf, anthropos, anthropy man, a wolf man. Or maybe a similar disorder and very close would be boanthropy, which uh, would refer to someone living like an ox. And of course, the critics of Daniel, and we have highlighted many of their criticisms, and I will, by God's grace, blow them all out of the water before we're done because they're just silly and they are unfounded and they are based on poor scholarship. But the critics say, well, this is just a fanciful tale. This is not history. And of course, there's a lot of ink that is spilt on this section of Scripture by believers and Jewish rabbis showing that this is not fanciful. This is actually a medical condition. I could quote Eusebius, who in 256 B.C. describes an identical case. We could go to Josephus in the first century, who does the same thing. Over that matter, we could go to a documented case in Britain in 1946. You can go online and see the pictures. I won't bore you with all the details. But listen, here's where I come down. If God can make a donkey talk, he can make a man bark if he wants. I don't need the medical evidence. The fact that God said it is all that I need. But nonetheless, there is good medical evidence to show that this is a condition that some have. You don't usually see these people because they're in mental institutions. So here's a man who thought he was more than a mere human. Like Mormons, he thought he was a god. And he needs to be brought down to earth. And so God is going to let him live like a beast to see that he's a mere human. Secondly, don't miss the fact, because people in spilling all that ink about the case that they missed the point of the thing, don't miss the fact that, that this judgment came just like God said, exactly like God said, as the word was in the king's mouth. 
it came down. Every detail of what God predicted, just like God said. And I want to tell you, while this particular judgment was not eternal, it was designed to keep them away from eternal judgment. There is coming a judgment that Jesus said will come just like a thief in the night. It will happen just as precisely and every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted. Every single prophecy concerning the first coming of the Messiah was literally actually fulfilled, which is one of the divine proofs for the inspiration of Scripture. And I want to say that every single prophecy will literally actually be fulfilled just like the Scriptures say. By the way, if the Babylonian Talmud is correct, during these seven years, Daniel took care of this king. Someone asked me, well, why didn't the people rebel when Nebuchadnezzar went into this state? Because they knew the reliability of Daniel's prophecy. It was well known to these people the incredible ability that God spoke through him and the precise accuracy and that this king was coming back to the throne. They dare not rebel. The final section concerns the king's deliverance. And this deliverance comes on two levels. First, he's converted, then he's restored. First, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, beginning in verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This, by the way, is the first time Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes towards heaven. God reached this man even in his deranged state. And God taught this king during this seven-year period that he had been living as a king, really like an animal. He had always been looking down and around, but he had never looked up. But now he looks up to the living God, and that's, what she, that's how we're different from animals. We don't look down and around. We are to look up because we are made in the image of God. And notice how he describes him. He describes him as the most high God. That jumps off the page to me. If you haven't noticed, it's repeated six times in the chapter. What does that name signify? Well, the first time you will find it used in Scripture is in Genesis 14 when Abraham meets uh, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, who is said to be the possessor of heaven and earth. God reigns over heaven. God reigns over earth. A bit further in the Old Testament, you find it used the second time in Isaiah the 14th chapter that describes the fall of Satan, where he wants to become not like the Redeemer, not like the most wise God, but he wants to become like the most high God. And in those five I will statements, he rebels against the living God. And by the way, this is not simply Nebuchadnezzar's sin. This is our sin, both individually and collectively as a nation. Taking God's glory, taking credit for what God has done. And so Nebuchadnezzar, his sanity returns to him, and he looks towards heaven. This man who was like a filthy animal, with hair all over his body, with long fingernails, he lifts his voice up into heaven, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, 
but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no one living in heaven or on earth can say, God, what are you doing? God, this is unfair. No, not at all. He is acknowledging that the judgment that came on him was just. This man has totally changed He's saved. He turns from other gods and he bows down and looks up to the one true living God. So in addition to his conversion, think now of his restoration, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. When he turns in his pride to humility to the living God, his reason is restored as is his rulership. Verse 36, at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. So he closes with the words of verse 37 that are published as an affidavit. In the year he recovers from his sanity, he writes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor, and those are active participles in the Hebrew language, meaning he said this over and over and over again, unlike in the earlier chapters where he makes a statement and forgets about it. This is a changed man. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so the God that he once called Daniel's God is now his God. Now, how are we going to apply this portion of Scripture? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, this chapter reminds me of the truth that no one is beyond the reach of a sovereign God. No one is beyond the reach of a sovereign God. You may know someone, and you're thinking of someone in your heart today that is so hard-hearted, so prideful, so arrogant, that in your mind, they would never, ever, ever come to faith. Listen to your pastor. Don't give up on them. God is bigger than any puny little man. God is not only interested in the poor and lowly. God is interested in the high and mighty. No man is big enough to run from the living God if God so wills. The second lesson that this chapter reverberates for me is that God hates pride. You will not find a more graphic chapter than this on the subject of pride in all of the Word of God. And if I were to ask you what is the fundamental sin of all sins, what is the mother sin? The Bible would say pride. It was the sin of Satan when he said, I want to be like God. It was the sin of Adam and Eve where he was, they were told they could become like God. And it is your sin and my sin every time we sin. Because when we choose sin and we choose our way, we're basically saying, God, we're wiser than you are. Our way is better than your way. We're going to do what we want. Like we know best. Proverbs is filled with warnings against pride. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven. And on the top of the list, proud eyes. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Look, every gift you have, every talent God has given you, every possession you own, 
comes from God. And part of maturing in Christ is recognizing what do you have that you didn't receive? People say, well, don't get a big head pastor, you know, for preaching. If a pastor preaches with power, he doesn't have a big head, friend. Because he recognizes that what he has, God gave him. It's an immature statement. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nebuchadnezzar came to know that everything he had came from God. A God, I think, could have won him differently had he repented like Daniel encouraged him to do, but he didn't. He refused, and God had to deal with him like he did. And sometimes God has to bring us as believers to a dark time, a low time. I mean, you look at some of the great men of God in Scripture in the 40 years, so to speak, they spent on the backside of the desert so that they could become usable. Years ago in the city of London, there was a large gathering of people, and among the invited guests was Caesar Milan. And a young lady that night played and sang wondrously and thrilled the audience. And when it was over, Caesar Milan went up to her and he said, and I quote, I thought as I listened to you tonight how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if your talents were dedicated to his cause. He said, you know, young lady, you are a sinner in the sight of God, but I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, can cleanse you from all sin. I mean, that young lady in her pride was so upset with that pastor, she walked out. He said, ma'am, I, I mean no offense. I just pray that God's spirit will convict you and you will come to know Jesus Christ. She went home that night. She could not sleep. She tossed, she turned. And finally, with tears running down her cheeks, she got up out of the bed and she wrote these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Charlotte Elliott that day was one to Jesus Christ. You know, I meet lost people and some of them go through the worst heartache I even meet Christian people who go through some of the worst heartaches where so much of it could be avoided if we would just do what God says. But it is pride that will keep the unbeliever out of the kingdom and it is pride that will keep the believer in the center of God's will. Finally, I'm just reminded that when salvation is real, it always becomes public. I hope you didn't miss that. When this king got saved... He makes an open public confession of his faith. He wrote it down. He had it published so that every people and every tongue could read it. Jesus taught that if a man, if a woman, if a boy or a girl has genuine conversion in their heart, if your salvation this morning is real, Jesus said you'll be unashamed. Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men. And that's what the lack of confession is. It is a denial the Bible teaches. I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. That's why we, without apology, have invitations here every week. Not because you're doing anything for me. 
I don't feel like I've failed if no one comes. If I've preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, then I've done what God's called me to do. But we have an opportunity for people to come to say, yes, I've received Jesus and I am not ashamed of it. And maybe somebody here this morning needs to do that. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. If you really know Christ, the Bible says you're not, you won't be ashamed of Him. You ought to join publicly. Or maybe you're here and you're not really sure you're saved. Why would you want to waste another day? What if your life is smushed out today before it ends? What if Jesus comes back before this day is over? It will be forever too late for you. Oh, but I've got so many things I need to do. You know, my work and my home and my family and my business. That's what Jesus said. The worries of this life will keep many a person out of the kingdom. Look, if you're here today and you're not saved, if you will take a small step towards God in humility, I promise you He will take a huge step towards you. Now, our Father, we thank You this morning that by the Spirit of God, You let Your prophet Daniel include the personal testimony of this newly won King. Thank You for the lessons that are timeless that are found on these pages of Scripture. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here and the Spirit of God has been at work in their heart. And they need to come today to Jesus. You said today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message, don't harden your heart. Help them in simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death and resurrection, save me. Father, we acknowledge that you hate pride. May you burn into our core that we have nothing but that which we have received from your precious hand. You alone are worthy of honor and glory and praise. You said, my glory I'll not share with another. May our lives be open before you. May we walk in humility, acknowledging that without you we can do nothing, but with you we can do everything. May people around us see the Spirit of the living God at work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, let us send you a pamphlet and message entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? In this presentation, Dr. Brogy will explain four spiritual laws that every man, woman, and child needs to know. Just call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for, Would You Like God as Your Friend? We'll send it out to you at no cost or obligation. And to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN5. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy looks at the handwriting on the wall as we study Daniel chapter 5. Join us then... 
as we search the scriptures. 